She's Julie Roxanne. And he's Alistair. And And this this is Far Out. A podcast about stepping off the beaten path and learning to live from our center. It makes me a, a little depressed and cynical and sad. And I'm sorry to start this episode on that. This is not planned at no, all. No, guys, it this wasn't planned. planned. It, just came, it, came, it just came out. It just- we actually wanted to talk about the boxes in our studio because we wanted to plug the 2020 retreat. You don't know what the hero's journey is, you do know what the hero's journey is. You just don't know that you know. <laughs> I would love the five years of knowledge. Oh, Lord, I wouldn't kill for those five years of knowledge, you know? (laughs) You you should have seen how he looked when he said that. He looked like those villains in the movies, like... With my hand in the air, clenched fist in the air, you know? (laughs) And the crazy eyes, God. It goes back Schopenhauer and Kant. And it's just a bunch of white dudes just saying stuff just. in their offices and <laughs> influencing other white dudes saying stuff in their offices. <laughs> yeah, all right. So. <clears throat> the more complicated books, by my standards, they're not really complicated. I just sometimes don't get really lazy. This has pained my soul. I- <laughs> Yeah, you gotta understand, like, I'm married to a guy who will read Nietzsche as light reading at the end of a long work day. Like, how this... Well, yeah, yeah, and yeah, what's wrong with that? (laughs) Need I say more? (laughs) Well, hello, beautiful listener, and welcome to a brand new episode of Farah Podcast. Hi there. We are happy to have you here. We have a very cool topic today that Alistair is very excited about, and yeah. I'm also excited about. It's one that's close to our hearts. It's the hero's journey. Mm-hmm. We're going to explore what the hero's journey is, the common stages of the hero's journey. And uh, the hero's journey is, I'm going to say one thing right now, it's something that you know one way or the other You've come into contact with it. It's all around us. It's in mythology. It's in the stories we love. It's in the movies we love. And there are stages of it. It's a formula in a way. So we're going to explore a little bit of why that is and what the stages are. And also how we've used it in our lives and and kind of reflect on how it's applied to our journey. Mm -hmm. And how it might apply to yours as well, I, I should say. Yeah. And before we get into that, we talk about Yosemite, our retreat next year, and how you can sign up. And also... Registration is open. Registration is open. (laughs) And Alistair goes on a slight tangent about eco-friendly businesses. So just just a heads up. Warning. Warning. (laughs) It happens. I'm not sorry. (laughs) Let's get into it. Let's get into it. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Wow, man, you uh, you really know how to keep the audience <laughs> enthralled. <laughs> I'm just trying to keep varying it. So I thought I'd go with a monotone good morning this morning. 
Well, good morning. Which, <laughs> which <laughs> my excitement about this episode because yeah. I am excited. Yeah, and uh, you're going to understand why very soon. Um, how are you today besides excited? I'm good. And we are surrounded by the remains of the Yosemite retreat. Yes. Uh, we've got boxes weird. and boxes of food we didn't use. <laughs> we have so much trail mix, dried fruit, nuts, yeah. some some extra oatmeal and stuff. We we kind of vastly overestimated how much food we'd have. I've read this before on this kind of stuff. It's like you pack your fears. And, and probably my biggest fear was we go on a retreat and people run out of food and then they get angry and there's a mutiny. To be completely honest, though, like not a lot of food was brought on the trail and brought back. A lot to, of the trail mix that is left is things that we didn't even bring. It's yeah, just like things we packed and didn't pack, yeah. basically. Like, didn't bring It's things we packed and then we decided it was too much and yeah. so it didn't make it. And we also have, like, lots of spices. Like, we've been moving this box around in different rooms and every room the box is in, you walk in, it's like, oh, God, paprika. Yeah, yeah I, I think maybe we don't save that. That's <laughs> just my thought. Those we are also, expensive, dude. We're saving it. All right, if it's expensive, we save it. That's my rule. <laughs> <laughs> I've also been washing Ziploc bags for hours uh, because we bought a bunch of Ziploc bags for separating everyone's food. And then uh, we started feeling guilty about how many Ziploc bags we were going to be throwing away. Yeah. Uh, especially for a wilderness retreat. Yeah. That just seems uh, completely opposite. So and we've actually saved like yeah, most of them. So we collected everyone's bags at the end, except for a few that went into recycle already. But yeah. we prefer to recycle them ourselves because less energy is going to be used that way than recycling them the more standard way. So we collected everyone's dirty bags full of peanut butter and sauce and yeah. other things. And I've been hand washing them and drying them out on the line. You're which the is steward a, of the earth. It's Alistair. a pain in the ass, you know? It's a real pain in the ass, I but I do sleep better at night. And I think, you know, I think, I don't know. I, let, let me say one thing about this. I almost think it's a crime. Yeah, no, I'm not going to say it's a crime. <laughs> I just, I, I think it's, it's really kind of depressing to me to know that that's an option. Yeah, that, that it's allowed. And that it, that it's only an option for me to reuse them. Yeah. And, and it's the one with the most resistance, right? Like my back hurts after a few hours of washing these things. You have to wash them, you have to rinse them, you have to like line dry them, then you have to store them. It's a pain in the ass for Ziploc bags that probably cost us like less than 40 bucks yeah. or something like that. Yeah. But the other option is to throw them out, which, and, and I think it pains me to know that that's a totally legal and viable option that you can make on something like that. It just seems like when you think about what happens, you throw a bunch of plastic in a landfill that maybe you used once or... It's just like, man, that shouldn't be an option. No. It shouldn't be allowed. No, it shouldn't. We, we should have to reuse them or be more conscious about it. I, I guess that's just a feeling I have. It's kind of a, I'm not, it's not a morality I'm trying to impose on everyone, but I, I do feel uh, kind of sad that that we're like, with everything going on in the world yeah. right now, it's still just an option and probably one that most people don't take because it's a real pain in the ass. Yeah. I made a deal with myself that in the coming retreats, we would find an easier way to do this. Not an easier. No, we would find a more sustainable way to do this because this is sustainable enough, but I would like to not use plastic at all. Yes, I would get, I'd would. i like sure, to get to that point too. I'm sure I'm, we were so rushed this year, so we didn't do it. But I have a feeling that there might be options for like biodegradable Ziplocs and stuff like that. That this we is, could compost. This you know? is the same frustration I've run into on my eco-friendly greeting cards. 
and it's a frustration I've heard from others too. For example, our our bio farmer Patrick that we buy from almost exclusively in France. Yeah. He does all our produce. He does it all on land he owns. He knows the land has not had pesticides or poisons used on it for like at years. least twenty years. He manages the whole thing himself, weeds it, nothing's used, it's completely organic. It's glorious, he's a hero, and it's really hard work. When we were talking to him one night, I think we were over for tea or something, and he was telling us about it. He's like, it's crazy. I have to pay extra to get the to get the bio or the organic certification, and he has to do all these extra things yeah. to be bio, yeah. when really... That should be the default. It should be the other way. If you're going to do other things, you should have to pay more. But there's actually disincentives for him to do what he's doing. And it's just like, and I ran into the same problem when I made my eco-friendly greeting cards, which are 100% recycled, and all the, including the shipping materials, are all biodegradable. So it's on the end buyer, but it's made possible so nothing has to go to landfill, which that was like the project, the idea. And it was incredibly hard, especially on the small things. Like I, I used uh, sealing wax. Finding that biodegradable was tough. And I used special envelopes that were recycled and all these things. And so not just recycled, but I also didn't want to use chlorine or, or chemicals in the bleaching process for the paper mm. or inks that were petroleum-based. It's crazy when you get down into it and you start looking at how things are made. The unsustainable processes that are in everything, basically. Yeah. Printing is is a lot of times oil-based. Uh, bleaching is bad for the environment and introduces a lot of chemicals. If you're using even farmed trees or FSC certified trees, you're still cutting down new trees yeah. when we have like an overload of paper in the world. Mm. And so you get into it and you have to figure all this out on your own. And that is expensive, not only in the in you end up paying more because yeah, yeah. any product you're going to buy is going to be more expensive. So, like, if you're a business, there's a lot of disincentives just from a profit and loss, especially if you're just getting started yeah. and you need to make it viable first, right? Like, that's that's hard. But then after that, there's still a lot of expenses because no one freaking knows. And a lot of the industry, especially the paper industry, doesn't want you to know. So they say they make up a lot of concepts that sort of terms that sound nice. Yeah. So consumers look at it as like, oh, FSC certified, great. Don't have to think about it. Well, you probably should because FSC certified does not mean it's 100% great. Yeah. Really, the best thing you can do is have it 100% recycled. But the thing is, even in the recycled world, there are misleading terms. Something can be 100% recycled, but that means it uses 100% recycled materials, which is only 20% of the materials or something mm. like that. So you can say tricky things yeah, yeah. that confuse people. And when you try to like hack through the weeds and figure this out, it gets really confusing. And the whole time you're going to have to make decisions about like something that a lot of times is not clear, especially if you're not in the industry beforehand. And when you're making these decisions, every time you're going to have to make a decision for some abstract good that you can't see, feel, smell, taste, or hear, but is there, mm -hmm. that's going to cost you more money yeah. to get started. Those are really hard decisions to continue to make. Yeah. You have to have a really strong set of values. And it's okay, like on a greeting card project, I can afford to do that. But you start getting into bigger projects or like the skate stakes get higher. Say I have kids and my greeting cards need to pay for my kids' education. Yeah. I can't, you know, I can see the limits of where I make those decisions. And I feel like I have pretty strong values. Yeah. And and it just, I, it makes me a, a little depressed and cynical <laughs> and sad. And I'm sorry to start this. 
episode on that. This is not <laughs> we, planned at no, all. No, guys, it this wasn't planned. planned. It just came. It, came, it just came out. It just... We actually wanted to talk about the boxes in our studio because we wanted to plug the 2020 retreat. Cheeky plug. Yeah, yeah. We actually that that was what we were trying to do. Instead, I went about on a rant about how the system. We might is, already have lost 50 yeah. percent of our listeners. Instead, I went on a rant about how the system is flawed in a deep way that seems unfixable. Jesus, I'm so, sorry. I'm fine. sorry. No, no. So let's let's do that plug. Let, let me let me do it. All right. Maybe? Yeah, I've okay, been talking cool. a lot. <laughs> we, <laughs> so it's official, people. Yosemite 2020 is a thing. We're doing the retreat again next year. This year's retreat was a huge success, as you may have heard in our last episode. And well, safe to say we already have a lot of people interested and the spots are going to go fast. And We think they're going to go fast. It feels I, like it. There's a lot more interest this year. We didn't even launch it this early last year and we have a lot more interest off the bat. It's barely, it's just got launched like two days we ago haven't even and we already, we already have people asking about it. So if you're interested, get in line and reach out to us. The email for reaching out to us is on our website, thefaroutpodcast.com. Yes, or you can go directly to rippleoutretreats.com. Yeah. We are going to start, we go through a vetting process with each person who wants to come on these retreats because these are, this is a, a wilderness retreat. Challenging. There is danger. Um, it is emotionally, physically, and mentally challenging. And any one of the 11 people, last year we actually sold it out. Yeah. Uh, and any of the 11 people, uh, actually, one didn't make it. Yeah. We had to uh, we had to evacuate them, and the other ten, uh, I think they will all tell you that it was emotionally, physically, mentally, and spiritually challenging. And that's part of what we're trying to do here. It's a journey. It's meant to be like that. So we, which is the this is the value of this retreat. So this was this is just a little thing to tell you, listener, that if you've been kind of on the fence, like oh, those sound kind of cool. The spots are limited. We don't have that many spots to give because Yosemite limits the number of permits. Yeah. And also, we're we probably going to want... end up taking 11 or 12 people this year. Yes. And we also just want a small group because that is how the connections are the most impactful. I was talking to someone who went on a retreat where they had 21 people and she was saying the group dynamic was whack. And that's just not what we want. So... There's that's another it. reason the group dynamic is so special is because it is a journey. And I think that's something we were uh, kind of rehashing with our partners on this, Lou and Kelly, is a special element that happens because not, I mean, usually there's a special element on retreats or on trips, but there's an even more special element because you are going to go on a journey into an unknown world, the wilderness, with us and with everyone else. And that forges really tight bonds. We had a really kind of motley crew to begin with. <laughs> uh, and Kelly had said this before, and it, uh, it proved to be true, is you don't know how it's going to work yeah. with that group. And sometimes you're like, it's not going to work. Yeah. And it does. It and it's does. amazing. It's and it's like amazing magic. the connections people make. I mean, we had, you know, a, a middle-aged Jewish doctor. We had uh, younger women in their 20s and, and things in between. And they all make these great connections. And I, I thought that was awesome to see the intergenerational connections or just like the connections from very different modes of life yeah. that happened in very deep ways. The last thing I'll say about this right now is that actually we have a podcast listener, Mike, uh, who came on this trip. And uh, I think he had a really good time, told me so. And uh, we really enjoyed having him. And I think if you're a podcast listener, you can come talk to us about it first. Yeah. 
Uh, but, you know, I'm going to throw Mike just out under the bus right now and say maybe uh, Mike would be willing to talk about it, too, if you're interested. <laughs> so you can get a, you can get an outside perspective yeah. on the retreat as well. Um, so perhaps we can make that connection for anyone who's interested. But if you are interested, the price is going to be the lowest now. And uh, we have spots right now, but we can't promise we will later. So we recommend getting in touch. Just get on that. Get on that train. Woo-woo. So, Alistair, what are we talking about today? Today, we're talking about the hero's journey. Oh, yes. Also known as the monomyth. And the hero's journey has gotten a lot of popularity, especially lately. I would say over like the last five to ten years, it's become much more in the mainstream mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. If you don't know what the hero's journey is, you do know what the hero's journey is. You just don't know that you know. <laughs> Star Wars is the hero's journey. Pretty much every popular series follows the hero's journey archetype. It's something that was a lot of work on this, and it was coined by Joseph Campbell. Joseph Campbell's now passed away, and I think he really got into this work. His book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, which is more of an academic, cultural, anthropologic study of myth and the common patterns and archetypes in myth, uh, I think that came out around 1949. Uh, maybe that was the second edition or third edition, so it might have been a bit earlier than that. But that's kind of when, like, the work was done on this. And it really got popularized later on. Joseph Campbell actually had a relationship with George Lucas. And uh, George Lucas learned about the hero's journey, went back and rewrote his whole plot narrative for his whole oh, yeah, plot for Star true. Wars. Star Wars is a great example of the hero's Star journey. Star Wars is It so follows good. it basically yeah. to the T. Yeah. And that's why it's one of the examples of why it's so powerful. So Joseph Campbell is a pretty interesting f- figure in himself. He's a scholar, an academic, and basically a bookworm. The guy probably read more books than anyone else I know or, or have read about. Yeah. The guy, in fact, when he was in his 20s, And he didn't exactly know what he wanted to do with his life. He was deciding between, oh, should I go back and get another degree? But he was realizing, like, "Eh, degrees are kind of narrow. They're going to force me to read what they want me to read. And I want to follow all these different tangents and read what I want to read. And this was in the time of the Great Depression. uh, So there were less opportunities. And he really wasn't sure. I think he was probably around 22 or 25 when he did this. I think maybe 25. He decided to rent a really cheap cabin. Uh, I think he was in, what's the famous, Woodstock, New York, Mm -hmm. or around there. And for five years, he rented a basic cabin, lived off of basically nothing, just kind of like food and water, and uh, was kind of isolated and read and just got books after books after books and read for five years. At least that's how the story goes. This comes out of his biography and some of the things he said pretty impressive. Alistair has always dreamt of doing that. <laughs> yeah. But I don't think I'd really want to. No, I'm really no. not it's, that in the yeah. books. It's like, it's a nice romantic idea, but when you get down to it, it's like, oh no, oh no, 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 no. I love reading, but it needs to be kind of supplemented with other things. Yeah. If it's just pure reading, uh, I, I do get bored and it yeah. starts to become very abstract. So I don't think I could have done that, <laughs> but I do dream I could, that I w- I wish I could. You, you, know, you wish you would, would want to. I would love the five years of knowledge. <laughs> oh, what I wouldn't kill for those five years of knowledge, you know? <laughs> you, you should have seen how he looked. 
looked when he said that. He looked like those villains in the movies, like, ah, those five years of knowledge, what I wouldn't kill. Yeah, with my hand in the air, clenched fist in the air, you know? And the crazy eyes, God. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I would just, I would kill a lot for five years of knowledge. But... Right, and I would do a lot for that, but I wouldn't read continuously for five years in isolation. <laughs> so that's where I draw the line. It's <laughs> a weird uh, shortcut. Yeah. Anyway, he's in a very impressive person. And I actually got into him. Uh, so that was his early life. His later life, he ends up getting a job teaching at an all-girls school. Mm-hmm. I'm not exactly sure the age of the the, I think they were the women. university. It though. was either uni- I think it might have been university yeah, yeah. or it was like high school. I probably university. No, it was university. I think but it was, it was Sarah all- Lawrence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. University. So it was an all all maybe young women's school, and that also makes Joseph Campbell very interesting because he is very tuned into the feminine in that way. He actually met his wife, who was a dancer, so also tuned into the like. So he has uh, his wife, who has a very strong body relationship. His wife was a professional dancer. Mm-hmm. He met her. She was one of the students. That probably wouldn't go well these days, but it worked out then. And uh, and he probably was in his thirties when he met her. Yeah, like there's not a yeah, huge not too, di- not too, but oh. but still, I think you get fired for that these days. Probably. Yeah. So that was his wife for the rest of his life, and uh, he ended up teaching for most of the rest of his life, and. On the side, he wrote and edited books, yeah. which was really what, what he's known for. And he did a lot of study. He was very influenced by some of the same people I'm very influenced by. In fact, I found them through his work. That's where I started, and I started going backwards. I have not read, like, all the things he's read. But Carl Jung, uh, which has been coming up a lot in our podcast lately, was a major influence for him a major one he actually wrote like the Carl Jung reader or like so if, which mm-hmm. I've read he didn't write it he wrote he edited it so yeah. he collected all his his works uh Nietzsche was another influence primarily probably because he was for Jung too and it goes back Schopenhauer and Kant and it's just a bunch of white dudes just saying stuff just... in their offices and then influencing <laughs> other white dudes saying stuff in their offices <laughs> yeah all right so <clears throat> Anyway, but he's widely read, and he got really into mythology, and that's really what he's known for, yeah. uh, is, is his study on mythology. And that's where the hero's journey comes in, because he recognized using a lot of Carl Jung's psychological tools for how to kind of analyze or read these things, that mythology all falls into a similar pattern. Mm-hmm. It's an archetype, and it's full of archetypes as well, but the whole thing is a pattern it's a psychic experience. Yeah, and he studied mythologies from all over the world. It's not just like the the European and North American. He he studied a lot of like Hinduism. Oh, everything. Yeah, he was probably like one of the leading scholars on mythology. Yeah. I'm not sure you could find someone with a more encyclopedic knowledge yeah, of yeah. mythology and could tell you mythology from pretty much all the world's yeah. uh, cultures on the spot. And that's exactly what he does. In and this is where I found him. I started with Bill Myers' interviews. This is a place a lot of people started with him. He did a very popular series. I think it was a TV series in the 80s uh, with Bill Myers. And um, basically, they sat down. Bill Myers was also a fan of Joseph Campbell's work. And they sat down over an extended period of time and had a very long conversation on a lot of this stuff. Not just the hero's journey, but that was a big part of it, but mythology as well. Yeah, that's unaudible, right? Yeah, and it's called The Power of Myth. And yeah, it's really good. It's phenomenal. I've listened to it multiple times. Joseph Campbell is an amazing storyteller. Oh, and the so way good. he weaves things. And Bill Myers knew his stuff. 
he knew Joseph Campbell's work very well, which made for a very good interview series. It is an excellent place to start uh, frolicking in the ideas of Joseph Campbell. <laughs> and if you... I just had the vision. It's really nice frolicking <laughs> around in ideas. I don't know how that looks like, but, but it's really... It's also good because you get to hear it from Campbell himself. Yeah. And he really puts a lot of energy and passion and he life does. into it that you sometimes uh, it comes a little flat on the page just because of the nature of writing. So it's He's a great a place to start. very charismatic dude. From there, I might go on to the Joseph Campbell Reader, which is kind of like... Uh, summary of a, like a lot of his big ideas so you can get them in like bite-sized pieces and a lot of good quotes you can kind of get the themes of his work in one small book that's a very good place to go and we're actually using some of the outline of the hero's journey from that book as a framework for this conversation that sooner or later we're going to get to and if you want to keep going with joseph campbell after that uh, if you've done those two things, then I think you're ready to really dive into the good stuff. He's got some good kind of popular books, like the... Power uh, of Bliss. The, yeah, there's The Power of Bliss, which is about individual transformation. Myths to Live By is another one I recommend a lot. I just recommended it the other week, actually. Those are two great ones to start with. These are like more as... He's a, he's a popularizer. What do you call it? A, vo, a, vulga, a, vo, a, a vulgarisateur. That's what you would say in French. So he made it very popular. He brought it to like kind of the mainstream consciousness. But if you really want to dig into his ideas and if you really want to absorb some of the mythology like that come that that influences his ideas, you have to go two places, I think, at least. There's probably a lot of other places you need to go. Uh, I, I haven't read James Joyce, which he was a, a massive fan of, and I, I plan to get around to it. But And James Joyce was an intuitive writer and a poet uh, as well. But two places that I've dived really deep with on him is one, his book about the hero of a thousand faces, which provides a lot of the mythology that informs the hero's journey and is a deep dive into the hero's journey in many of its forms, which is kind of inexhaustible in a way. And then you can start going to Carl Jung because so much of Carl Jung's ideas inf inform uh, Joseph Campbell's that you, if you really want to understand what he's talking about, you probably need to go see what Carl Jung is talking about. And uh, this might be a good moment to say that if you didn't catch all of this, it will be in the show notes of this episode at thefaralpodcast.com. So what is the hero's journey? Right. So the hero's journey is best imagined as a circle. It, well, it is a circle, basically. But you can imagine it almost as a clock. That's, mm -hmm. a, a, that's a way to start. I think it's good to have an image in your head when we talk about this. Yeah. And uh, just to outline that clock, you have from 12 o'clock to 3 o'clock, the first quadrant of the hero's journey. It's the call to adventure. It's... It's the departure. It's the departure. Then you have from 3 o'clock to, to 9 o'clock. Yeah. So the bottom half of the circle is basically a different world. It's a different realm. Joseph Campbell would describe it as the forgotten realm of the gods. It's the divine realm. In psychological speak, it would be the unconscious. It's, it's a realm, special world. Yeah, and basically. it's where you go through initiation. It's a world that is unknown to the top of the clock. It is a different world with different rules. If you are into stranger things, it's the upside down. Mm -hmm. But this is a place within us. I mean, basically the hero's journey is a psychological, it's a psychic map. It's a map for how to navigate kind of the transformation of the soul. Mm -hmm. It's a map for change. 
It's a map for kind of recovering and getting closer to the source mm -hmm. that animates us all. It's a map for life. So you have the bottom section. This is what would be called by Joseph Campbell, initiation. This is where uh, the three o'clock to nine o'clock section is where you're in the special world. It's a risky, insecure place. Uh, you, all sorts of things are happening. You are battling dragons. You might be looking for your princess or your prince. You might be going through a, a realm of trials. Think of like Harry Potter and uh, which one is it? The Goblet. It's not the Goblet of Fire. Is it the one where he does the three? He has, he's in the competition. Yeah, that's it. That's it's the Goblet, Goblet of Fire. So this would be like the, the, the trials yeah. uh, that, that Harry Potter goes through in that one. Basically, you're looking for what was lost or what is missing. Mm -hmm. This is what's happening here. After that, you get back into the ordinary world. So you have 9 o'clock to 12 o'clock. So this section of the, the circle is the return. This is when you return with the jewel, with the boon, the thing, the treasure, what you found. Yeah. And it's bringing it back into the ordinary world. Mm -hmm. This, Joseph Campbell describes as one of the, if not the most difficult part of the entire hero's journey. And no journey is done until you have returned to the ordinary world with your gift. That's what makes you a hero. So we're going to talk a little bit more about those three sections. So Alistair has been like talking to me about the hero's journey for the last two years. And I've read some of Joseph Campbell and I've listened to The Power of Myth, his interview with Bill Myers and I've loved it, but I never really took the time to actually read the more complicated books. By my standards, they're not really complicated. I just sometimes don't get really lazy. This has pained my soul. <laughs> yeah, I'll, but you gotta understand, like, I'm married to a guy who will read Nietzsche as light reading at the end of a long work day. Like, how... this? <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, and yeah, what's wrong with that? <laughs> Need I say more? <laughs> but I finally got around to reading the entire like word like section on the an outline journey, of the an outline, and man, it's really powerful. I it's like I knew the. I'm concept. rolling my eyes over here. Like, <laughs> I know. I, why do you think I told you to read it? But I know the concept, so I just thought like I know enough that I understand it. I don't need to go too deep. That's my style. I dabble into things and I never yeah. go really, really deep. Yeah, yeah you're Except, an INFP. We know this. Oh, well, no. uh, and so, <laughs> but it's really, really powerful. I read this and I could come up with like a thousand different examples of those different sections in my own life. And I think maybe this is a good time to point out before we go and explain like all the three different sections, that this is not a linear journey. This is easier to explain it as a linear journey. It's not it's, linear at all. It's a circle. So it no, really... but I, but I, yes, but I mean, in the sense that we're, we're talking as if it has a beginning and an end and that's it. But the thing is, this is a map for life, for changes all the time it's constant and for instance i probably have like three or four different heroes journey going on right now in my own life i think a visual for this stages i think a visual for this to imagine sorry for interrupting yes. you you're giving me the eyes i apologize for that we did make a note before we started not to interrupt each other and i'm getting too excited <laughs> is if you put two mirrors in front of each other and you see what happens they go back to infinity yeah. right on both yeah. and both sides yeah. visually yeah. that's what the hero's journey is it's circles within cir like yeah. they're, they're all cycles right so you might complete one and that might be 
there there might be one that encompasses that whole thing and and then it goes down smaller so this is part of the power of it is that you can find hero's journeys and we use the hero's journey as a framework for our yosemite retreat yeah. as well it was something that we we led discussions around this especially at the beginning and the end when people are entering the threshold and then returning which are very critical parts of the journey so you can use it for something like a a, a trip yeah. you can also use it for something as big as your life yeah. and everything in between. And it's not meant to ever be completed. You're always somewhere on the circle yeah, of the hero's that's, journey. That's a great way So to say. it's a great framework for interpreting the events of your life. And if you use it that way, it can be extremely instructive on what you need to do, especially when you're facing something that is scary, something that is unknown or darkness. These things, the hero's journey is so great at turning or using those things in a way that is empowering and helpful. And I can't think of any other framework in my life that has been so helpful and instructive for me over the last five years in shifting from a life I knew to a life I didn't. Mm -hmm. And if you were trying to do that in any aspect of your life, this is something you really should spend some time with because it's... It's so key. And because the hero's journey is basically whether this is something that emanates from our psyche and is something that's the reason that these patterns are so common or what and and why everyone resonates with them. The hero's journey is so popular because everyone resonates with it. You do not have to reinvent the circle on this one. (laughs) You really don't. If you follow it, it works extremely well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I don't know if it I don't know it's something you can summon, right? It's not like you can make it happen. I think it's just life happens and you can you can use that as a map to understand why how life is happening. Yeah. And and, and, and also maybe how you might want to respond or the story you want to tell about it. True. The story you true. want to tell about it as well. Or in the case of someone like me who writes quite a bit, then you can summon it, right? Yeah. Like then you a lot of times oh, use for sure. it. Yes. And that's the way I was talking about it there. But it's a product of our our psyche and but it's also a product of our experience. This is a common psychic experience that humankind has. This is a story for dealing with change. And that is why it's so powerful. And if like me you're a little sensitive to the wordage, uh it can totally totally be just flipped and made feminine. So the heroine's journey and all this, all the components of it can be just flipped and, and fit the script of also a woman's journey. Yeah, it, it is not, in a lot of ways, it is gender neutral, although a lot of the words, especially when Joseph Campbell uses them, isn't. And I think it's important to remember that Joseph Campbell spent most of his time in a feminine world as far as his teaching career. Uh, but a lot of mythology and a lot of these stories uh do and also there is a male female kind of roles right yeah. like sometimes it can be flipped so for the it, it is also the heroine's journey yeah there are differences and people have outlined those as well but there are also certain roles that the feminine and the masculine play and to some extent those are a little bit more solid mm-hmm. sometimes yeah <laughs> So let's talk about the departure quadrant. Like what happens during that first... 12 o'clock to 3 o'clock. Yes. The departure is critical. So it begins with the call. It, this is the call to adventure. And Campbell, Joseph Campbell, is uh, he points out that 
a lot of times this is negative. A lot of times this is darkness. A lot of times this comes out of tragedy. Mm -hmm. If you think back to uh, Star Wars, Luke Skywalker's family's uh, murdered and, and his home's burnt down to the ground. That's what gets him on his hero's journey. Yeah. In my own life, you know, if I'm thinking about this kind of journey I've been on, this traveling journey and everything that's kind of led up to this podcast and where we're at now, this unconventional life we're living, a major part of it was depression, anxiety, and fatigue. I was sick. It was disease. Uh, It was a darkness that, that I couldn't shake. And for me, there's a few things that happened around that call, which was I felt the need to do something else. I had an experience in Peru, kind of a spiritual awakening that that highlighted that. But before that, I, I knew I was sick. I knew if I kept going down this road, kind of hyperbole, but if I went down this road, it was death and destruction. Mm-hmm. You know, it was it was not the way I wanted to keep going, but I didn't know, I did not know what to do or like how to get out of that paradigm. It was completely foreign to me. Yeah. That was a call for me. Yeah, my call was actually an actual call. Like, I remember I was definitely struggling with the same thing. Mine was probably more like loss of meaning. I was working, but I didn't really know why. I was tired. I was depressed. I was like unmotivated. That's the only thing I can say. It's like I was working all the time. And then in the weekends, I had no juice in my... I had no life left to do anything. And I would just like really watch my life happen without doing anything about it. And I was starting to get into self-hypnosis. And I had a, I did a session one evening when I came home from work because I felt like, man, something's really wrong. Like just something's really wrong. And And I heard a voice in my head that said, you have to do something else. So that was like an actual call. And one of the hardest things about the call is accepting it. And I think a lot of us, and many times over, we hear the call and we refuse to hear it. Yeah, and that's the refusal of the call. And before we go there, I think a thing to say about the call is like, yeah, it's not, it does not have to be something external. In yeah. fact, it's really internal. It's a discordance. Yeah. It's something, it's a dissonance. It's something is wrong in my life. I'm missing something or uh, I've lost something. Yeah. Um, that is the call. It is, it is an unbalance. And this is recognized internally a lot of times. And where, as we talk about the hero's journey, you know, in story and stuff, objective outside things are used to tell an inner story, to tell a psychic experience. So the dragons are mythical creatures, but they represent other things. Mm -hmm. And so the call can be a knock on the door, but usually it's a knock on your inner door to your soul. It's, It's not something, it's not something that's always happening without it just feels like it's 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 usually it can be something that feels off right just yeah. something that's a huh, that's kind of not right. it can be a stagnation yeah uh it can be kind of just a, a loss of, of libido and, and and of vitality and this is where the refusal of the call is or it can be really dangerous because if you refuse that call you're basically refusing some deep intrinsic personal interest of yours mm-hmm. something you want, need, have to do. And if you refuse the call, the hero's journey and all the benefits of it is flipped. Mm. It becomes uh, inverted and you experience the negative. You experience its opposite. This is where uh, disease, stagnation really happen. I mean, basically it's a death. It's, It's deciding not 
to change. It's a holding on to what already is. And in a world, in a, in a life where the only constant is change, that is a death. Yeah. And, uh, and I think Joseph, Joe, as we like to call it. My boy Joe. Our boy I'm, Joe. Yeah. Fucking Joe sometimes when he fucking says Joe, things. Fucking Joe, when he says things that are just like, just poof. Wow, just dropping yeah, the mic. fucking Joe. Joe. <laughs> <laughs> But Joe says that um, refusal of the call is probably the worst option you can pick. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's the end. Yes. It's it's the story never starts. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and the thing is, I mean, it is very tempting. It is very tempting because I feel like it's it feels like it's it gives an illusion of safety. Because if there is one thing that you know for sure when you answer the call and you decide to follow it, is that everything is about to become really, really scary and uncertain and risky. That's actually how you know you're on the journey, yeah. is it's inherently risky. You are not safe. You move into a world with special rules. Yeah. And actually, this takes us to the next part yeah. of the first section, which is the uh, departure, which is walking through the threshold. Actually, before that, when you say ah. yes to the call, those are when the magical aids come to your rescue. This is your Obi-Wan Kenobi, your Yoda yeah. Yeah. In, the, uh, in the Star Wars saga. So um, you haven't gone into the upside down, into the underworld no. yet. But you get, because you said yes, magical aids appear. And they will not appear if this is not your journey, is the general kind mm -hmm. of theme here. So if you decide to go on a trip everyone else is going on because everyone else is going on it, don't expect to see any magical aids. It's not going to happen. This has to be your journey. Yeah. And then things will happen to support you on that journey in ways you could never have seen before. And oh my God, has that been true of my journey, especially... I haven't always gotten into the story of my journey, and it's something that we really want to get to. But my journey, uh, for those of you that might not know, is that I ended up leaving San Diego. I broke off a business partnership, a romantic relationship. I left a lucrative and pretty secure job. I gave away, I sold my things and uh, left, left my uh, home of 10 years, basically, in San Diego, and walked away from the social circles I knew and left the country with no plans and a one-way ticket and ended up traveling uh, basically until this day. And that all started with the call, with this major discordance in my life, mm -hmm. with the darkness, basically. What were your magical aids? So some of my magical aids, and, and I think it's also we should just be careful that this is one hero's journey, right? But this isn't the hero's journey of my life. Oh, like yeah. there, there, are, there are more. There are ones inside of it. There are ones outside of it. When this one ends, another begins, mm -hmm. and all this. So, But in this particular yes, case. Yes, in this particular case, some of my magical aids were the healing team that I found that got me ready for the journey. So this happened in the years before I left. So my doctors, I can think of two in particular. One, that Dr. Hillowitz that I still work with at Lotus Rain, uh, who helped me kind of diagnose and treat my, my thyroid, my Hashimoto's thyroiditis condition. And there was another doctor that, that helped quite a bit. Actually, there was a couple. I had a, a psychologist for a little while that helped prepare me for some of the things I was going to go through. And along my journey, there were so many. Yeah. There were so many just that showed up at the right time. I remember a time when I was uh, on a, maybe a mini hero's journey through the high Tatras in Slovakia and Poland. This was my second big kind of backpacking trip. Uh, I was staying in mountain huts in the, in the high Tatras. And it was springtime. 
And so there was a lot of snow still in the mountains. It's a small mountain range, but it's kind of technical and it's kind of steep when you get into it. And I did not have the right gear. I didn't really know what I was doing. I was just like, I want to, I was learning how to backpack and and mountaineer in a way a little bit. And I stepped into a situation at times was still one of the most dangerous trips I've done. I mean, I remember a section where there's a lot of snow and you're on fairly steep mountains. So I remember one section after a pass, so I couldn't turn around at this point, where I had to walk over probably about a 30, 20 to 30 yard uh, length section of snow. And I was on the side of a mountain, mm. pretty high up. And the slope was icy snow all the way down. And uh, you had a balance beam width section of snow to walk on that was fairly hard and safe. And on the left side, you'd you'd slide down the mountain and hit the rocks down below, like pretty far down, maybe yeah. 100 yards at the minimum, probably further. And on the right side, the snow had started melting. So there was a gap of about maybe a few feet between uh, the mountainside and the snow. And then there was about a 10-yard drop to the rocks below. So it's like serious injury on the left side, possible death on the right side. And you had to walk this balance beam, this narrow beam to the other side. I was not ready for that. And I had a heavy pack on and probably not the right shoes. Uh, I made it across that. So when there was a, a couple that encountered it right after me, and the woman was basically crying and screaming across. Oh, my God. But during that same trip, I hit a section of, I had to go over a pass, and it was technical, and it was snowed in. So you couldn't go up the trail that you would usually do. And the snow was steep, and it was slippery. And so that gets really scary once you've gone a little way up the mountain. You don't really want to stick on that. I didn't have crampons or an ice axe. I was kind of foolish. And then a fog moved in as I was starting to get up it. And I decided to scale the cliff. I was just free climbing mm-hmm. with a pack on oh because God. it was the only way up. And the fog had moved in. And so I was getting a little freaked out about the weather and these things. And it was dangerous. What I was doing, I was taking an unnecessary risk. It wasn't very smart. And at that time, a Polish crew of three, it was a man and two women. I think he was probably leading them. Uh, and he was a mountaineer and he had ropes and all the stuff you need, the the ice axe and all this stuff. And he kind of like screamed at me. He's like, hey, get off the side of that mountain. It's not a good idea. Come with us. So And so he put up a line to the top and I just walked up the rope with, yeah. the, with the other women and turned out the other side was even worse oh coming down. And if I, if I had gotten up and had to go down the other side by myself, it would have been, I mean, if I got up was a big question at that point, but if I had to go down the other side, I'm not sure how I would have done it. That was a magical aid. Yeah, yeah. My magical aid was, I think it took me a little bit of time to hear the call just because I didn't even know what that meant. Sometimes you get the sense like, oh, something's off and I need to do something about it. But I don't think all of us know exactly what that means at that time, right? For me, it felt like, okay, I'm going to quit my job and do something else. And then what? Like, what do I do? Where does the money come from? Like a lot of those questions. I didn't have a safety, like cushion of money put aside. And you didn't know the hero's journey either. So you don't have this like kind of archetype for thinking about this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I mean, it took a while. But then when I finally said yes to the call, almost immediately after it, like within the three months that followed, I... Uh, I I worked for my my last boss who ended up breaking off our work contract in a way that the French government would pay me unemployment fees, even though I decided to leave, which is usually not the case. 
Um, we call that doing you a solid. He get, yeah, he did me a solid. And without him, I would not be here. We would not be married. And, you know, like none of this would have happened probably. And that's because you ended up having, in, you had no money at the time. Yeah, I, I was going to, I was going to quit and have no money. Although I had made that decision. I was so desperate and I could not go on. You had and answered I the said, call first. Yeah. And so I said, fuck it. I'm going to quit and then I'll figure it out even if I have to go, go back to work in two months because oh. my small amount of money runs out. That's what I'm going to do. And so that happened. And then my dad also gave me some money from what he considered he owed me because I didn't do as long studies as my brothers who both went to business school and I just really didn't have any sort of over like above no. high school uh, diploma. So, yeah. So and those things just came out of nowhere. I think that's part of, and that's important to emphasize, especially for someone like me, who's very logical, rational, very, I plan things. I'm very, I can be very conservative in my planning is that you can't be in, mm -hmm. in this. And this is not, this is not me telling you to be, just take massive risks, like mm -hmm. climbing a mountain you're not prepared for. That was yeah. stupid. But there is an element of magic to this. Yeah. There is an element of, you cannot see the way. Yeah. It is almost as if, Only until you've made the decision to do this impossible thing yeah. do you find out that maybe it's possible yeah. and that there are people that can help you with it. And yes, you can take this to an extreme and it can be very dangerous to live from that way, but that's part of it. Yeah. Is that it is seriously risky and you are going on a quest that you're not sure you're going to return from yeah. and terrifies you down to your soul, down to your bones. Yeah, and it's that tension between like being rational and measured and, and calculating the risks and assessing and then also sometimes just jumping and hoping to God that there's a net down there because you can't do the other. The other way doesn't work for you anymore, right? I mean, that's that's how it's been for me all the time. And to this day... My faith keeps getting growing and growing that if I jump at the right time, that is when I feel like I really need to change my ways because something's wrong. I don't think it's a good idea to keep like jumping and testing. If you know, if you're on your already on your path, you're good. You don't need to keep starting the journey again. Yeah, you, you know? that's thrill seeking. Yeah, at the there's far yeah, end. yeah, yeah, yeah. But I feel like my faith has grown more and more. Now I know that if I jump at the right time, usually there's a safety net that I don't see that's under and that will catch me. Yeah, and you've used the F word, which I think is an important word here, faith. Yeah. Uh, because I remember in this particular hero's journey of, of leaving my, my past life, that is when I really had an experiential understanding of what faith meant. Yes. Until that point, it was intellectual. I, I, I kind of got it, but I don't think I ever truly practiced it. Yeah. And That that experience, that leaving, um, answering that call required a real act of faith because I couldn't see the other side. And that is always the case on a hero's journey because you have not walked through the threshold yet. You are still in the ordinary world. You are answering the call like Frodo to go into the special, dangerous, risky, but very rewarding world. Yeah. Uh, but this is an underworld. This is a special world. This is the world of of gods and powers way beyond you. And and that is terrifying. You don't have control in that world. Yeah. And I think maybe clarifying that it doesn't necessarily mean faith in a particular god or 
or a goddess. If anything, I think it's faith in yourself. I was going to say it's probably... But it can be a power greater than you. Yes, yes. I think it can be faith in patterns, faith in Joe. Like, to some extent, he's studied mythology from all around the world from God knows how long ago. And there's a reason why there's only one pattern that shows up in all different mythologies everywhere around the world, as far back as you can go in the writing, in the written times, right? Like, this, there's a reason. There's a common realization for many heroes later on in the journey that there is a benevolent force yes. that is helping them yes. get through. And so, but right now, you don't know that. I mean, you might, you might be able to read something like Joe says and say, okay, well, Maybe it's there, but that's still kind of in the left brain world of logic and reason. And this is the ordinary world. Yeah. Uh, it's really, you have to live it. And that's putting it on the line. That's that's putting everything on the table. And what if it's wrong? That's faith. Yeah. The last thing you have to do in the departure quadrant is crossing the threshold. It's the moment where you said yes, some aid has appeared. So you have some form of like... Uh, weapons or things you're equipped to go down. You have the talisman. You have the powerful amulet that's going to save you when you face the dragon. Yes. Or you you basically, you have some things uh, that are given to you for the journey. And that are helping you cross the threshold because it is not an easy task. And I really like the quote that Joe says, which is, there will be a moment where the walls of the world seem to open for a second and you get an inside through. Jump then. Go. The gates will close so fast that they often cut the tail off your horse. I often imagine Indiana Jones rolling under the closing door. That's usually more when he's trying to get out of a situation. Yeah. But I imagine that. It's like he's rolling over the closing door and he barely has time to grab his hat and yeah. pull it out before the door slams shut. That's yeah. what it feels like. I, I remember very specifically when that moment was for me. I had definitely said yes to my call at this point. I was on my way, but still unsure just unsure. And I was studying hypnotherapy. And at the end of the first half of my training, it was like a block of two weeks. And then there was another one a few months later. I came home the in the evening after partying to celebrate the end of it, woke up the next day. And because I got to bed really late, I woke up and it was like 2 p.m. And I was alone in my apartment and I looked around and I had this crushing sense of like, oh my God. No, this cannot be my life. Like, this cannot be my life. And it's hard to even say exactly why I felt this way. And it's almost, it almost feels unfair because it was a good life, but it just wasn't mine. And that is a moment where things really change. And I think I walked into the, I walked in the upside down and then everything unfolded from there. A few months later, I had broken up with my partner, left my apartment, packed a bag and just left. Yeah, it's a sense of urgency that usually comes with with crossing the threshold. And I remember one of my threshold crossings very well. And it, well, you know, actually, I can think of two now that I'm talking about it. One was like the threshold for the threshold. So let's start. <laughs> so, let's get, so a lot of things happened for me. I, I was general manager at a startup and I had a very lucrative, secure job, a lot of status and a lot of freedom. It was kind of a dream job in a lot of ways. And I decided to go with a friend uh, about a year before this happens. For a year, a friend and I had, my roommate actually, had planned to do this epic trip to Machu Picchu in Peru. It was something we both wanted to do. It was important to us. And we'd been planning it for a year. 
uh, halfway through that year, maybe around December-ish or something, no, it was more in the spring, uh, I decided I was going to leave uh, my job. I walked into my performance review where I'm pretty sure my boss at the time, like the way these usually went is that I asked for a lot more money and uh, I got it with a lot more responsibility. And like, it was getting to the point, you know, like that's how these usually rolled. And I think my boss was pretty shocked when I walked in and just said, I'm done, I'm leaving. Mm. There was no negotiation. I didn't want any more money. I was done. Oh, wow. I, I remember being in the cafe waiting for him and my hands were shaking yeah. and just sweating. This is the only job I had. I'd had it for five years. It was my lifeline. It's in San Diego. I, it was by anyone's accounts in the rational world, I was out of my mind yeah. for walking away for this, from this. And really on a whim, I, was go- I, had, a, I had an idea. And my friend asked me to join this company and it was something I was passionate about. But there was no money involved at the moment, you know. And yeah. it was foolish from that outsider's perspective. And basically, he offered me a large sum of money to stay with the company in a way that would jeopardize, at least he wanted me to hire my replacement Mm -hmm. and he wanted things to continue. And he was in a part of the world where if he returned, there would be massive tax consequences for him uh, because he needed to be out of the country for so long. And this interrupted that plan. Mm. And so he was willing to offer me a lot of what he was going to lose to keep me there to make sure I found my replacement. But it was going to come with the responsibility of making sure, and if I didn't, I'd have to stay instead of go on this long-planned three-week trip to Peru. And and he offered me basically around $30,000 to do this. Hmm. And I, being the business manager I was, I was like, okay, well, what would I need to do that? Like, what would I need to make it? And I decided it was a lot more money to the tune of three times that. Which was ridiculous. Yeah. But but it was like, okay, well, if you really want me, that's the price. Yeah. And otherwise, and I remember a lot of walks around the neighborhood in our business area. Like, he was at this 30000 and I was like, no, it has to be three times that or I'm leaving. And it was really tense. And But he offered me a big sum of money, and I followed my gut, and I walked away anyway. It was crazy. It was a crazy thing to do. And that trip to Peru was probably the most pivotal trip, probably partly because of this, but also because of an ayahuasca ceremony that we're going to get to on a later podcast uh, that really changed my whole life. It gave me a new story for living. It was a spiritual awakening. It was a lot of things, but it was a massive pivot point in my life. Yeah. And it happened on this trip. The whole trip was magical. It was an amazing trip. It opened my eyes in so many ways, and it never would have happened if I took the money. That was a threshold yeah and that was one that would have that was closing that was me rolling under the door and grabbing my hat on the way out so that's the threshold to the threshold the next threshold the bigger threshold was actually what happened next which was i came back i started working on this new business with my my partner and it wasn't materializing and what i'm going to say now happens over the span of about a year a year and a half but it wasn't materializing and I end up realizing I'm going to have to leave this too, that this isn't working. And I end up realizing around the same time, or a little bit earlier actually, that my romantic relationship of I think three or four years at the time was not working either. So both of those end. uh, And I'm the one that initiates both. Mm -hmm. And I go on basically what my friends called a walkabout, basically a soul, like a soul searching journey for three weeks. I drove my car up and down the West Coast, just kind of ambling around, thinking about 
this because uh, there was a very heated discussion with my business partner as we were trying to dissolve things or as I was trying to dissolve things and he didn't want me to. And our business coach said, you need to leave for a little while and just really think about things and come back and give us a final answer. Mm -hmm. And I said, that's a great idea. I'm leaving. (laughs) I packed up my bags and left like two days later. And on that trip, on the way back, when I needed to come up with a final answer, I had a realization. The first realization, which I knew the whole time almost, was I'm leaving. I really am leaving. Uh, And this was basically like, if I left this, I I did not know what I I was terrified to not have a purpose, a job. I was really purpose hungry. I was really wanted to have a reason to work and and an animating thing. And uh, if I left the job, I really didn't know what the hell I was going to do. And that terrified me. And I came back and I realized I was going to leave the job. And I had a moment on the way back. It was, I was in Ashland, actually. And I realized, oh my God, I don't have a girlfriend or a relationship worth staying in San Diego. I no longer have a job or work for staying in San Diego. I don't need to be in San Diego. And and I also had the realization, I shouldn't be. I need to leave. Mm. I have to leave. I have to leave right now. This is the chance. Yeah. I can't stay here. I realized that. And I, I called my friend almost in tears, my roommate, because it meant my good friend that I was going to have to... We, we lived together in San Diego next to the bay. It was, it was fucking perfect, yeah. you know? Yeah. And I had to call him and tell him, you know, I'm leaving. I'm out of here. And I'm sorry, but I have to go. And this is a cascade of events. This means, okay, I have to, get, I have to figure out the mess of my apartment, which is what am I do with all that stuff? Where am I going? I don't know where I'm going. Yeah. I just know I'm leaving. It meant a lot. And it took a long time to leave. It took me probably about like nine months to wrap things up and really go maybe a little less. That was a threshold because if if I didn't leave at that moment, maybe I find another girl or maybe I get another job offer or something like that. Those walls were going to close. If you imagine the upside down and because we keep coming back to Stranger Things, you know the kind of split, the wound yeah. in the wall where yeah. the upside down comes through and yet how it like start, as soon as the powers stop pushing at it in the third, well, if you haven't seen the third season, but it closes, right? Yeah. It's like getting through and it's getting through that before the walls close. And that's exactly how it felt. And there is a, there is a really deep sense of urgency when, when, when you're crossing a threshold and you've answered the call. So we've crossed the threshold. We've answered the call. We've been given aid by magical allies and forces, and we're now stepping into the unknown, the darkness. It's uncertain. It's risky. It's dangerous. We don't know what's ahead. And we're lost to the ordinary world at this point. If you're a Dungeons and Dragons kind of player, we're playing a board game called um, Gloomhaven. Gloomhaven. It's amazing. It's basically a kind of a du- version of Dungeons and Dragons. It's really, really fun. And we've been playing it with my brother and and his uh, his wife. Uh, we're, we're nerds on the weekends. <laughs> <laughs> but in, in, a, in a dungeon crawler like this or in a Dungeons and Dragons game, you leave the town, you go explore the world, you go underground into crypts and, and lairs and dungeons that is our hero's journey right there. You are gone from the town. And you, for all the town knows, you're lost. Mm. You are invisible. You, no one knows if you're coming back. Yeah. That is the realm we're entering now. And uh, I'm sorry to say you're going to have to wait till next week for us to explore that realm. <laughs> because we're running out of time. Because I talk too much about this. <laughs> <laughs> so I can hear the groans or maybe the sighs of relief. <laughs> I'm not sure which they are. 
we hope you'll stay tuned because as you can tell, we find this a very fascinating, very rich and very helpful subject for living life, living from our center and, and walking our own path and hero's journey. So we hope, uh, we hope you'll come back next week for, for the remainder of Joseph Campbell's hero's journey. Thank you, listener. Thank you. It's been great to have you here. And Julie Roxanne just reminded me as we took a break there that after I did this epic conclusion, (laughs) (laughs) we forgot to do our normal outro. Yeah. So we're going to do that now and uh, ask you if you will, Julie Roxanne. Oh, yeah. Uh, I was like listening and waiting for what you were going to say. Well, you know the drill, people, but we feel like we have to say it again, you know, just like share the episode. Repetition, repetition, repetition. Share the episode. If you feel like it was useful, subscribe to the podcast and then feel free to... Leave uh, us a review, please. If you haven't left us a review (laughs) and if you appreciated this, we'd love to read your review on a future episode of the show. We'd love that. So... Thank you, listeners. We'll see you again next week. Yes, for the rest of this beautiful, wonderful hero's journey. Toodles. Toodles. Toodles.